All right. Welcome, folks. Welcome back to Larger, Freer, More Loving. As always, I'm Matt Levine. I'm Dwight Lewis. And it's good to be back with you all. It's been a minute since we've had an episode, uh, but no matter what you listen to us for, we've got a feeling that this episode is for you. Because uh, today we've got with us multi-hyphenate Hanif Fazel, uh, an activist, a writer, a race equity facilitator and consultant, a business owner. Uh, and I know it wouldn't be an integrity with your values, Hanif, if I didn't also mention uh, awesome father, brother and son. Uh, hey. so welcome, Hanif. It's awesome to have you here. Thank you. Appreciate the time. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so jumping right into things, uh, with all of these things you do, uh, you and I first connected uh, through your role as one of the founders, along with Fruwaini Kiros, uh, of the Center for Equity and Inclusion in what's now known as Portland, Oregon. Uh, so we wanted to start there. Uh, what's CEI? How did it come about? What's its significance for you and for our community? Um, so CEI, Center for Equity and Inclusion, uh is an organization for Wayne Kiros and I started, oh gosh, I think we're almost eight, nine years into it at this point. Um, and it really is, um, I think like in title or in like, if I was writing it out, you know, for general public, it's a consultancy. And it's, um, it's a consultancy that is focused on advancing race equity in a more transformative way. So we work with part, uh, and we work with a range of organizations from philanthropy to education to for-profit to nonprofit, kind of name the entity. And our work really is to see if we can uh, work with these organizations to transform how they do their work, their business, and how they serve the people in the communities they serve through a race equity lens. Um, and so we um, are really more interested in kind of not the we're less interested in like a two hour implicit bias training kind of organization, that kind of thing. And we're much more focused on organizations that really fundamentally want to shift how they do their work or how their in how their culture lives inside their organizations. And they want to, uh, in order to specifically, you know, for all people to thrive and very, very specifically for people of color uh, to be thriving both in the organization and uh, on the recipient of services. So that's a little bit of that, you know, significance um, for us. Um, you know, it, part of where it started was, you know, for me as a uh, as a person of color in Portland, um, and I identify as like Mexican Indian, brown, all that. Um, I I um, I was in a nonprofit that was predominantly white, and it was a well-meaning white nonprofit doing good youth development work and all that kind of stuff, and. I struggled in this in a significant way in that in that organization. And I was able to actually sit and move up in the organization um, and do well there, but I never felt really any strong sense of um safety or comfort or belonging. There's it just never quite felt right for me. And in a lot of ways felt really marginalizing. And I would have these reactions constantly to the way the organization was working or how I was being positioned in certain ways. And um, and out of that, um, came this thought and this belief that we could, we, we have to rethink how we operate as organizations and we have to begin to consider in a way that we've never, we white people have never really had to consider the, um, the experiences of people of color as they live in, in organizations and in particular organizations like work um was something that was um so important to me in some so many ways partly because we spend so much time in work and in school so those two spaces particularly mean a lot to me uh, so so much of our life is spent in those spaces and also work was such a big part of my life growing up like watching my mom and and how much time she spent at work trying to support us so trying to figure out how to create a space where people really felt this sense of belonging and safety and purpose and agency all this stuff in in spaces that we occupy so much in these workspaces became just real important to me so you know that part of it is um important and i think for me then the orientation was and i think the relevance or the importance for the community is um we i think there's 
there's lots of consultancies out there that do diversity, equity, inclusion work. And I think they have their kind of thing that they do. I was never totally interested in that. Like I, we have our thing that we do uh, and people go and they, um, they can experience a CEI training or partnership or whatever. But I really wanted to build an organization that was a learning organization that constantly was shifting and evolving what we do. And was at the, like almost what I wanted to consider was like the leading edge of equity work that was always kind of unsatisfied with the work and how it lives. Um, and, um, and so for me, there's a, a real significance to, an, uh, to the community or a real value to the community when it has an organization um, in, that is committed to its own growth and learning, right? Like who CEI is as an organization is fundamentally different now than it was eight years ago, than it was four years ago. And we've made so many mistakes along the way. And um, But for me, those mistakes have always been part of a learning process. And certainly like how we're about, we're, we're constantly shifting our work. So there was just something there that I think was really, um, it's kind of core to who I am around wanting to constantly learn and grow, want to constantly evolve and wanting to position organizations as learners as well. So they were constantly growing and evolving the way that they worked with, employed, served, partnered with, whatever the word you want to use, uh, folks of color. So that's a long way to answer that question. I should, I gotta be, I gotta, I gotta get more concise. No, 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 no. but I am going to ask you, you Please. know, for people who don't, don't understand and don't know, what is race equity? Uh, great question. Um, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. No, no, don't apologize. That's a good question. It's so funny because I was saying to someone um, that people who do DNI work um, sometimes live in a bubble. Um, and I, I'm talking about specifically about people, white people for sure, but I, people of color too. Like, and we use words that like most people of color actually don't use. Like if I was with my friend and we went to a basketball court and I was like, yo, look at all the BIPOC people on the basketball court. <laughs> my friend would be like, what the fuck are you talking about? Like, what are you, like, who are you, right? Like, you know, all these different <laughs> acronyms, and, you know, DEI. Like, I got someone who was like in, like who does equity work very like focused in education. I said, oh yeah, I do DNI. He was like, what's DNI? And I, it just reminded me, I was like, yeah, nobody actually uses this language except for like 2% of people or something like that. Um, <clears throat> so I think it's a super fair question. Um, how I would describe race equity is um, after working, like I've worked now over 30 years in black and brown communities. Um, and I've worked in like um, education spaces. I've worked in the homes, in social service, like in very intimate ways with them. And then I've worked in the corporate side and the nonprofits, all this kind of stuff. Um, one thing that has, <clears throat> I think, um, shown up again and again and again is that there seems to be kind of a very consistent set of needs or wants from folks of color around the spaces that they're in. And those tend to be that folks of color are looking for some assortment of safety, of joy, belonging, of agency, and purpose. And um, when I think about race equity, um, I think about uh, the work that is focused on help on removing obstacles and barriers so that folks of color can experience that regardless of their own identity. Right. Like identity is part of that and we celebrate it, all that. But our barrier around our identity as black, brown or whatever isn't impeding, isn't getting in the way of or we're not um, having obstacles presented to us in, that get in the way of that. So, you know, for me, we got to understand when it comes to race equity that we are at different starting points in this game. So when my daughter was born as a young girl of color, she has a whole host of she starts at a different place than a white girl that lives in, you know, 15 minutes away from me in a much more wealthy neighborhood than I live in or whatever. So, you know, how we remove those obstacles um, for me is a little bit of anti-racist work and how we support and um, position people of color to be able to get to those places of 
equal op opportunity and access and joy and belonging and all that kind of stuff um, is the work of race equity. Thank you so much for that. You know, I'm always trying to put something in. You're right. Not a lot of people do know what you brought up your mom and the way that she works. I always want to put something out where my mom can listen to it. Uh, and my mom, you know, my mom's a janitor. Um, I don't know what your mom, what your mom does in the world. Uh, but yeah, so I'm always explaining. It is like, she's the one that forces these type of questions from me. I love uh, it. I feel like we need to get way more real and accessible in this kind of work, whatever you want to call it, uh, race equity work. I think we're not, we're not as relevant as we need to be and real as we need to be with like real people of color, like uh, the everyday person of color, person of color who's just working and doing their thing and all that kind of stuff. They're definitely impacted by race equity and all those things. And we haven't figured out how to make the conversations accessible. Yeah. 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 Well, um, we've got your book to help us with that. Uh, right. We've got your book um and other world the fight for freedom joy and belonging um and our first question at least in relationship to your book is how did you choose this how did you choose this title and what did you want to express uh not just with the title but with the book um here's the thing i wanted to express with the book which was um so the book is in in impacted in in by two things one is kind of my own life and kind of connections with various people of color and experiences i've had there um but also was deeply impacted by race equity work that i've done over the last um however many years and one thing that i've noticed in race equity work um was that more and more and more people of color were disenchanted by it like by DI work, like um, when you yeah. go to organizations and you say, hey, we want to build an equity team <clears throat> on our in our organization. People of color are the last people to sign up for that. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, when it's time for race equity training, they're the most unhappy about going to it, right? And it wasn't always, like in the beginning, it wasn't always like that, but it certainly is like that now. And <clears throat> one of the things that I think happened in this process, and I think it's happened in general around is that the work of our for our freedom or for a sense of justice or for a sense of belong all that kind of stuff um always focused on naming and acknowledging the role and presence of whiteness or white supremacy of all of that kind of stuff and it in it, it was about changing hearts and minds of white people in a lot of ways Right. And the idea and I get it, like the idea of being like, hey, if I could just shift the way these white people think, if I could just shift the way these white institutions operate, I would have a sense of freedom. Right. I would have I wouldn't then they're they're the root cause of all my problems. Right. Um, and so one of the unintentional, I think, impacts of that was that the work then became like unintentionally recentered whiteness and everything it did. Right. So if you were a person of color going to some kind of equity training, you had to sit and listen to for three, four or five hours. White people struggle with, you know, the idea of racism or whatever you want to call it. And what person of color wants to actually do that? Right. And <clears throat> a lot of space for people of color to be able to say, like, hey, here's my experience. Here's what I'm needing. Here's all these kinds of things. Right. Um, and so even in anti-racist efforts, we were recentering whiteness because it just constantly was about white people learning. Um, and I like, don't get me wrong. Like, I think white people need to seriously learn when it comes to race equity and yes. so, you know, <laughs> kind of stuff. There is a mountain of learning that they need to engage in all that kind of stuff. But for me as a person of color, what I kept seeing is people of color feeling really disenchanted. And so what that started to bring up for me is like, Hey, in some ways, <clears throat> have we been a little misguided in the work? And I started to also see as I started to kind of find my way through all of this, that, um, that there was work for us to do as a community of color, like really important work 
for us to do as a community that didn't actually have to do with white people. Like white people serve as the backdrop or, you know, white supremacy is always there. <clears throat> but <clears throat> our internalization of that um, are the way homophobia runs through our communities, the way sexism runs through our communities, the way the, the, the all that is unsaid between black and brown people and all of the anti-blackness that sits in brown communities like there is so much work for us to do yeah um, that could move us into and i also felt like there's a like a a un, like in a system of white supremacy in which racism is permanent which is what i believe right um there it can feel like there is no real freedom ever available to us. Yes. And I think that to some degree, that is way incredibly true. Like we're not necessarily free to feel safe when we walk down the street. We're not free to free of people's, um, what they ascribe about us based on our identity. We're not free to, you know, do all these kinds of things. That being said, I think within that, there is a unique freedom that I think people of color can experience but that i i believe that that freedom is actually only found in within us and between us as communities of color and, and people of color so part of like the impetus behind the book was hey i wanted to write a book to people of color for people of color that was about us and our work and that people of color could relate to and find um both learn from like, hey, I don't have that experience as an undocumented person. Or I don't have that person as someone who's been incarcerated for da -da, whatever it ends up being. Um, but there's something that I wanted to learn because they're part of my a broader community of color, or I can find myself in that. And there's some real questions for us to be asking about that, about um, there's some real questions that we need to be answering. If we're really going to act, we say like we're a community of color or, you know, I don't really necessarily believe that. Um, I think we're, we're all collectively impacted by white supremacy and we're collect but I don't necessarily think that that necessarily makes us a community. Um, but I, and I also realize that the only way through, if there is a way through all this is going to be in relationship and in community. So there's some, so there is that, right. And so this idea of another world was, um, it, the title made sense, um, and that was the easiest part. Uh, I, I was working with someone who was like an editor and um, her name was Ariane Con Ariane Con Ariana Conrad. Um, and that just kind of popped up <clears throat> for her. And as soon as I heard it, I was just like, oh, that that makes complete sense because I'm, I wanted to talk about, it, besides the play on words, um, I really wanted this to us to think about what a black and brown centered world could look like. And that would be a complete another world. The subtitle was a longer process. Uh, and um, I'm not good at succinctness as you probably realizing now. Um, but uh, you know, you have to, in a subtitle, I don't realize all this stuff about writing a book, like that they were saying like the title has to tell the reader what the book is. Right. Um, and if the title doesn't do it, the subtitle has to do it. And so in like four or seven words or whatever, how do you do that? And what we wanted to be able to do in the in the subtitle is name um, what are we, what's the outcome here in some ways, like freedom, joy, belonging, all that kind of stuff. Um, at the same time, we wanted to recognize in the book, and this is certainly a part of the, the book, um, that there's a struggle there for us. Even if... Um, even and some of that is in relationship to white supremacy and, and how that gets in the way of our joy and freedom, but mostly the struggle within us, within ourselves, within each other, like interpersonally. Um, and so we wanted to capture that. We were we were struggling with this idea of the word fight because we thought people of color would look at that and be like, I do not want to read another book about the struggle, you know? Um, and this book is not really about is both about the struggle, but not in the kind of traditional way. So we we went back and forth, but we wanted to get kind of a more gritty, um, then a gritty kind of description of it's of that kind of pursuit. Um, so 
That's that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have one, I have one more question. Man. Yeah, yeah. So I'm the, I'm listening to you and um I'm hearing about this, you know, white learning um and the ways that it is, of course, like leaning on black people uh and brown people, BIPOC people in general. Um and um like one of the things I guess I've been I've been thinking about a lot is the ways that like we have to translate our worlds um to the to the to um a white narrative or a white understanding or and let's not and when I say white I'm meaning white supremacy right um yeah. we've got to like attune ourselves to this um and I've hear what at least what I hear is you trying um to break uh that cycle right um uh what do you um what are and again, here I go trying to uh, t- uh talk about white people. <laughs> uh, <laughs> how uh should white people move in that space? Um, yeah, yeah, um, in a space yeah. where like BIPOC people are just like, um, now we're working on our we're working on ourselves, mm-hmm. um, and maybe it is just that they should be working on themselves also, um, but. I'm like asking a, a, a different question, meaning can can white supremacy work on itself by itself? Um, uh, um, that's a great question. Yeah, I firmly believe, yes, it can work on itself by itself and it needs to um, uh, because and and like even if I think about like from a critical race theory standpoint, um, you know, the idea of counter story, right? Mm-hmm. So like counter stories play such a an important part of anybody's learning, whether it's a white person or it's a black or brown person, whatever it ends up being. So, you know, I think it's I imagine for white, I'm not white. So I imagine for white learning, it's helpful to be exposed to perspectives different than your own lived experience, right? So I think like all things, um, when we're decentering whiteness, it's wise not to make things an either or, right? Um, so either it all happens in isolation with white supremacy, or it or people of color have to be the teachers of, right? Yeah, I think, yeah. And I think this is the hard part of race equity work is that it's, it lives in nuance and gray, mm-hmm. right? And so Yes, absolutely, 100%. uh, White people need to be working on white people with themselves. And that's white people's greatest role in race equity, I believe. The number one role, people always say, what's the role of white people? The number one role, by far and away, is for you, you white person to go work with your people on helping and raise and elevate the consciousness of your your folks, right? Um, And so there's really powerful work I think that can be done there. And I actually also feel it's a safer container for white people to work in, right? They don't have to worry. They can say what they need to say. They can, you know, not be worried about harming other people of color. They don't have to look at our eye rolls. <laughs> they don't know, like, you know, like all these things that happen when they talk, right? Um, and they can learn safely. Yeah. At the same time, part of anybody's learning is how do I apply that within the spaces? How do I gain um perspective that I don't have right yeah. uh, and so I think there's value at a certain point for conscious white folks to learn how to be in a race dial across race dialogue right or across race process or whatever else um in the same way there's value in brown people and black people learning how to work together collaboratively that being said so that's like on the white side of things on the people of color side of things I think the word for me is discernment. Um, I don't think we have been able, like my experience has been that we're able as folks of color to fully all to always discern that for ourselves. Like in, in other words, um I haven't seen consistently folks of color even name, hey, what am I needing? as a person of color, like, um, I don't want to explain everything to white folks. So one of the moments that I'm not going to, 
Like, I'm just not going to because I don't want to. I don't feel like it. It's draining, blah, 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 all that kind of stuff. Um, and one of the moments where it's like, hey, for everyone's sake, for my sake, for my daughter's sake, for my kid's sake, for everyone, like, or this white person is actually really, really trying, right? And like, it doesn't hurt to be able to say like, hey, here's my perspective on this and da, 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 all these kinds of things. I don't feel like we're, white feet, people feel too unpredictable about how they're going to receive our, our experiences. Folks of color don't feel like we're always all over the, the map around how we're feeling about it on any given day. Um, and so I think part of what we're needing is a place where we don't have to explain, where we can talk about our experiences and we can challenge one another around our experiences. We can learn from one another about experience. But I haven't seen folks of color overtly name that um, as kind of a, hey, we need these spaces to learn. We need these spaces to heal. We need these spaces to um, advocate and grow, hold ourselves accountable, all that kind of stuff. And in that space to figure out like, hey, when do we explain to white folks? When do we not? Hmm. Like that's a people of color. To me, that's a people of color conversation. Not like there is a right answer. Um, and that may be different for everyone, but this is one of the many conversations about like, to me, I, ultimately the, the, the question is for people of color, what is the relationship? What is the relationship we want to white people? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And specifically to our to when it comes to race equity and when it comes to the work, what is the relationship that is needed? What is the relationship that we want? And how do we, as folks of color, take care of ourselves and that process, all that kind of stuff? So there's just stuff there. Yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. I really love this discernment. I really love this discernment because I think that is actually, I think it's one of the hardest things to do when you're moving in the world by fog. I really do. Sometimes uh, you brought up needs and wants um, and then taking care. And I think oftentimes we step uh, into the needs um, and we're looking at the needs of the community and instead, instead of like you're saying, looking at the needs of BIPOC community. Yeah. Uh, and we think that the only way that we're going to get our needs is if whiteness understands and gets its needs. Um, and I think like this, uh, you know, uh, Matt, I'm going to say <laughs> too much philosophy here, uh, <laughs> but it's reminded me of uh, the Copernican turn. You know, it's like this idea of like completely shifting the way that blackness is or brownness or even, and I'm even going to say, uh, like tra uh, trans folk, whatever, whatever marginalized position is seeing the world, moving through the world, instead of it being so outward focused, you're really yes. trying to turn that lens. Um, and I really, really think this is so important. And then, and we are not discerning in relationship to turning that lens, right? Uh, we are not. And I think, yeah, I need to grow so much in this area. That's why I'm like, this is awesome. This is awesome. Well, people, uh, white people don't understand. This is one thing white people don't understand. And it's always a little heartbreaking to me is um, the mental gymnastics that people of color are doing in the presence of whiteness that white people have no idea. Like, how, how do I say this exactly right? Or I, I you know, I want to go in and ask for this raise with my white boss. I got to make sure da 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 or I'm in a race equity training. I, I want this person to get it. So I need to say it just right. All of that is just like, just think of the cumulative impact of like constantly considering white, the white experience, just the, the, the take on the body. If that's what you're doing all of your life. Right. Um, and white people are completely oblivious to it. Like they don't have no, I have no idea that people of color are sitting right next to them saying like, oh, how do I like, you know, da, 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 how do I, all that kind of stuff. And there is no history that that actually works. So we're doing that because, and I get it. Like, this is where I'm not being, like, I'm not being critical of people of color. I'm actually, I feel deeply empathetic around this, around like for my own survival, I feel like I have to get them to understand and all these kinds of things. But there's nothing pushing them to understand me. There's no incentive for them to understand my experience. In fact, they've been rewarded for not 
right? Like yeah. the game is to not consider our experience. So yeah. I'm hanging my head against this wall, thinking it's going to get me all that kind of stuff. And to some degree, it keeps me keeping white people comfortable has kept me safer. Um, but it doesn't bring me joy, belonging, kind of the unique feeling, all those kinds of things. So I just think there, again, it's not an either or. And, I, and we're really clear about discernment when we're doing work with folks of color around like, hey, there's times for my own job safety, I need to consider how I'm going to say this in front of this person or that person. And I better be really smart about, or I need to not say something, right? So this isn't just like, hey, let's just go say whatever we want to say, however we want to say it, all those kinds of things. But it is to say like, hey, how much of my life has revolved around the consideration of white people and to what degree do I need to continue to live in that kind of way? And how do we create spaces where we don't have to consider the white experience and we can actually consider our experience and what we're needing and make that the central conversation? Um, like, can we, for some folks of color, even considering that those spaces in their workspaces could be possible is like, brand news uh, it's just fucked up to me it's just like okay and that's how the whole whole thing goes you know so i don't know yeah no this that's is, good this reminds me of one of the things i loved most about the book hanif um you you share these just amazing stories throughout with really high highs really low lows uh but you never flatten your experience at any point uh, the nuance, that messiness of life is always there. Uh, so there were these times I was reading and I would just be like, man, that's shitty. And that's when you'd come in with, ah, but 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 remember this lesson. <laughs> or other times I'd think, dang, that's so awesome. Good for you, Hanif. And you'd be like, yeah, that's amazing. But don't forget this context. Behind <laughs> it. Uh, and there's this particular passage uh, that I, I, I really felt like that emotional and intellectual and social nuance was so present uh, that, that we wanted to ask you about here. So you say, um, I believed that my knowledge of white supremacy was freedom, that somehow knowing how white supremacy operated meant it no longer had a stranglehold on my self-esteem and worth. I believe that, uh, that armed with the awareness like Neo in the Matrix, my refusal to acquiesce positioned me outside the system. But in fact, all my determination, perfectionism, workaholism weren't positioning me outside the system. They were in fact the primary symptoms of a person of color who was a full-fledged participant in the system and in many ways was unconsciously perpetuating the system. I'd conflated resistance with freedom. <laughs> that's cool that that line that's um uh so there's two like that's speaking yes that's the uh um what would i uh so the question is you want me to do a response to that let me ask that uh this <laughs> is uh I love that passage that there's probably nothing that captures the arc of the book in some ways more than that. Like that's the arc of the book in some ways. I, um, Beautiful. let me say this because the book ends in a very particular way. And there's four letters to Amina in the book and it, and it, it, it'd be interesting as you, as you work through the, all the book and all that stuff to, to read that passage and then, um, there's two letters, one about joy and one about rest and, and compare those two to that. Um, uh, I say, when I say I conflated resistance with, you know, freedom or knowledge of something with freedom, um, it goes a little bit of what we just talked about, which is, um, my const um so i used to like i i used to take pride there was a um my ex uh we were in a conversation about how i worked around race equity and it was such a drive for me like the work is not something i considered work right like 
anti-racism work, um, partly from my own lived experiences, but partly because earlier in my career, I was working with black and brown kids who were so deeply impacted by, um, by as pro as almost like as a result of the systems that they were part of. Right. And I was in very, very intimate settings with kids who would be talking about very intimate things. And I, I did that for years and years and years. And so there was an urgency for me and a realness for me. These weren't like things I could, like I can go and I can um, intellectualize institutional racism and all these kinds of things. It, none of that is actually intellectual for me. Yes, it is intellectual, but to me, I bring it right back to these kids' stories. So there was an urgency around this work and a drive around this work. And the analogy that um, my ex gave me was like, hey, you know, you're like the boxer who keeps getting in the ring and like you're getting hit, you're getting hit, you're getting hit. And, you know, you get knocked down, but then you keep getting back up and you just keep getting back up and you keep saying, well, you can't knock me out. You can't knock me out. Right. And and you actually take pride in that. Right. Like that white supremacy can't knock you out. Right. And her thing was like, hey, maybe sometimes it's, it's OK not just to get into the ring. Right. And that that concept was like, hell no. Like my entire life, I watched my mom struggle and struggle and struggle to like support us and to keep us going and all those kinds of things. So like struggle and was almost part of my identity, right? Like it, to me, struggle was part of my survive. Like I would, I would, and still to this day, probably identify more as someone who is a survivor of or someone who's in the struggle with, like, those are things that like, I'm, I'm in the struggle. I'm, you know, those things are like part of my identity, but there's something there about when you identify as the struggle or you identify as a survivor or your work is about fighting, right? That um, what happens is that becomes all you do is you fight, you fight, you fight. And you're, again, you're recentering whiteness in everything you do because whiteness becomes at the center of all of your efforts, right? Like, even if it's dis dismantling it, even if it's dismantling it and, and you're fighting against something that's not, you're not going to win. Right. And I, and that was really hard for me to like, like from the competitive part of me, who's like wants to win at every single thing that I do. Right. To like the idea of like, that it's not possible that this thing is permanent. Right. And I, again, I want to hold that over time, we'll be able to disrupt this enough that it transforms itself, but in my lifetime, right? But that's not the fight against something is very different, different than working for something. Like you can fight and they can, and it, this might seem kind of nuanced here. Like I can fight against racism and in my mind, I'm like, yeah, I'm getting to freedom. Um, and it's on one hand, it's like two sides of the coin. There's a fight against something. On the other side, there's a fight for something. So even if, let's say, white supremacy was um, tackled, let's say, let's say, imagine a word, people of color, we have a whole host of issues that we would have to work through on our own. We'd have our own stuff that we'd have to work through, all those kinds of things, right? So the pursuit of joy is a very different pursuit than an anti-racist pursuit. And I know they're connected. They're not, again, they're not separate. So there was something there about like constantly resisting conflict. What that was doing to me was like having massive impacts on my body, um, was having incredible impacts on my health, was tearing apart my relationship. So here's what an anti-racist, a commitment to anti-racism can do if you're not, uh, and you're just thinking about resistance. It's like, um, hey, it's my daughter's birthday. And I have the opportunity to go speak to 400 people um, around something that's really, really important around anti-racism work. And it's a chance to get CEI in the game on something and da 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 And this is a system that really needs this. And you have people of color saying, hey, we really need CEI in here. And we really need you to do all this kind of stuff. Um, and so what do you do? Well, if you're, if you're in that about that resistance kind of thing, what you end up doing is going and doing that talk. 
and saying, hey, can we do the birthday this weekend? Can we do the birthday? Can I do it before? I'm just going to, Amina, I'm just going to make sure me and you have time, like all these kinds of things. But there's never enough time. Like there's never enough time for the relationships that you need, all those kinds of things. And so I couldn't at that time put together, put it, I, I just couldn't understand it that like, yes, resistance to and trying to dismantle oppressive systems are a huge, really important work, but it sits, all that work sits on a foundation of relationship, of health, of um, spiritual connection, right? Of learning and growth, right? That happens in your closest relationships in your communities of color. And the work is actually to cultivate and build that foundation. That's the work, right? Um, for folks of color is to actually figure out where does joy actually exist for me? And I couldn't, I just couldn't at that time understand that I could experience joy that one, I deserved an experience of joy, that I could experience joy. I had no idea where it lived, any of that kind of stuff. And that that would be just as valid. Because when, um, Dwight, when you ask, hey, what's racial equity in the beginning? Let me put it even more succinctly here. When people of color are experiencing joy, to me, that's racial equity. That racial equity is a is an outcome. That's what racial equity is, right? It is an outcome. Um, racial equity work, you want to put that, like the work towards racial equity is work, right? But in of itself, racial equity is an outcome. People of color experience joy at an equal rate of that white people do, right? Or it, have equal access and opportunity to joy or have all belonging. So when, so when people of color experience belonging, when people, couple, people of color experience joy, when we experience a sense of agency or a sense of purpose, that is to me actually racially racial equity. I didn't understand that. I didn't understand. And I felt like the only way to that was through white supremacy. That white supremacy was like the gatekeeper to my joy. Yeah, or yeah. To my sense of belonging or the gatekeeper to my sense of purpose. Fuck that. Like, yes, that impedes that, it gets in the way often. Right. But my joy, I I don't have to give access to my joy to white supremacy. That's within my power. And understanding what was within my power to cultivate and nurture and hold, regardless of the role and presence of whiteness or the role and presence of white supremacy, is actually a whole different body of work. Because now that requires me to actually ask, like, hey, what's my relationship to black people? And like, how do I work through my own anti-Blackness or where am I good with gender or these kinds of things that exist? Or how am I as a father? Yeah. Right? My greatest moments of joy are with Amina. That has nothing to do, white, yes, white supremacy impacts it. It makes things difficult, but I still have control of it. And so that's that, that resistance. I didn't understand that me spending a lifetime resisting was actually doing the work of white of white supremacy because it was breaking my body down. It was it was not it was having me focus my attention on things that weren't actually going to bring me joy, belonging, all the things that I actually need to thrive as a person of color, right? Yeah. And it, again, it's not to minimize. I don't want to minimize the work that we did or I did or other racial justice leaders have done. I just feel like that resistance to something is very different than working towards some, something or building something up. Yeah. And it, it, I didn't understand that. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it completely does. And I'm over here, literally I'm writing down right now, building versus resistance. Um, yeah. in, the, in the ways that like resistance, um, is is a type of building right mm -hmm. um it's not the type of building that you're trying to center here um in your work um 
And so like, I'm thinking about this. I'm thinking about the ways that I know this was a labor of love uh, for bike park communities. And I'm going to just go ahead and say marginalized peoples in general. Um, So I want to ask like in relationship to this building and resistance, like what did you, what was the like self learning process as you wrote this book? Like what was the biggest lesson that you learned for yourself in this? Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that. And I would add like um, building versus resisting. I'd also add nurturing versus resisting. Because if I ask like, um, like how am I nurturing the relationships that bring me that sense of joy and belonging and freedom as well as how am I building it? Because I think both are there. But this idea of nurturing, building and nurturing versus they're just different things. Um, I think the biggest learning of the book um, there is a lot of learning. Um, <laughs> I think the number it, it was actually it, it's actually the conversation we're having now because I um in the book there's four letters to Amina and uh, who's my daughter um and I wanted those letters to both be actually real like if I was to die tomorrow (laughs) and i wanted to leave her with like hey these four things i want you just as your father there's four things you take with you about me and you try to integrate in your life you know like these would be the four things to hang on to amina right um and it's funny because there's one more about forgiveness that didn't didn't get in there but um um to get to those, the easy parts we're writing up, not the easy, but the the stuff that was there was the experiences, right? So it was not easy, um, but it was there. So I could write about it and I could, and then it was just as simple as like, hey, how do we want to organize these experiences? What's the story we want to tell? The letters to Amina the two things that the writing did is when you're writing. So I was struggling in my writing. Let me put it this way. I um, I was struggling in my writing. And I was, again, working with Ariana, who's a, a phenomenal writing coach. And I, I sent her a bunch of stuff. And at one point she said, just stop. Her, her feedback to me was stop writing. <laughs> just stop, stop um, right now. Uh, I remember that. And I was like, oh. And then um, at one point we just couldn't get anywhere with it. And so she said, what I want you to do from here on out is write from the first person. Every single thing that you do, I want you to write from the first person. And then the second thing she said was like, hey, I want you to imagine your life as like 10 episodes in a Netflix series. What would those 10 episodes be called? Yeah. And then, So two things happened in that process. When you start writing from the first person, so first of all, like the, I don't know how you all write or if you all consider yourselves writers and stuff, but like for me, I can't just like wake up in the morning and start typing, right? Like, yeah. uh, and especially <laughs> I have work and all this kind of stuff. So it, writing is a process. Like I have to like get myself in the space. Then I have to I have the headphones on. I can't hear anything. I have to go to one very specific <laughs> place. Like, so what happens is like, I would get zoned out. Like the whole world would not exist and I literally couldn't hear anything and I would start writing from the eye and you start writing and here's the great the craziest thing for me that happened which was um I don't even call them I can't even call them memories I don't know what to call them but you start writing and it's almost as if the words have been in your body or these experiences have been in your body the entire time and now they're like literally coming out of your fingertips and all of a sudden it's like oh yeah she said that to me or oh yeah like that happened or oh yeah so you start writing from that very kind of personal place and you just go back in a very weird way to those moments to the point where my therapist at one point said you need to stop writing for a little while um so one thing that happens is as I was writing because we didn't know how we were going to organize the book we just knew we're trying to put the pieces together. I started to see the patterns. I started to see certain patterns in my own life. And I started seeing patterns of 
how we were interacting. I started seeing, it's almost like um, watching your life play out in front of you, if that makes any sense. And all of a sudden you can be like, hey, I'm noticing this is the way I've moved through life. And this is the way that's worked for me that's moved through life. And this is what's helped me move through life. And so the relationship between black and brown people started to become, it's obvious because those have been significant relationships all my life. But almost like it was different when you pull yourself back and say, oh, wait a minute, there was a way these relationships really functioned that allowed me to move through. And when they didn't function a certain way, it fell apart. Like, so I was able to get way more crystallized in the idea of like, hey, this, the resistance to things are never what moved me forward in life. It was, um, it was the nurturing and the building of things that moved me forward in life. And, and it was always was relationships. Like every program I've ever built have always been built on relationships. And those have been very sp specific relationships with black and brown people that did that. So that, that real understanding started to really take hold. And then the letters um, were such a powerful process to get to those letters. Um, uh, those ideas of joy and rest and belonging and identity, those four kind of identity and how I, how different racial identities connect and, and build relations. Those just started to really culminate. So like the focus of this book of like, Hey, there is another way to experience the world and to work towards our freedom that we need to investigate. Like that's, I'm so grounded in that now because of the book. Like it just helped me understand like, oh, that's been my life journey. I just didn't quite recognize it or acknowledge it because I was so preoccupied with like whiteness, if that makes any sense. Like it what felt like whiteness was always getting in the way. And I was always trying to get it out of the way that I wasn't actually realizing like, oh, there are people who've said like, don't worry about getting this out of the way. Let's just find another right way around, you know, and let's work together to do that. And I was way more happier in those types of experiences. So that kind of learning around uh, what has allowed me to find joy, what is joy from where it exists, probably number one. And then where do I, joy and belonging, where does that actually exist for people of color? in the system of white supremacy was like, God actually crystallized during the right. So I didn't write the book knowing that, if that makes any sense. Like I wrote the book and it came out. I was like, oh, wow, this is, it's, it all kind of crystallized. It felt like in the book. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Hanif, that's amazing. And you say, you say um, uh, that one of your goals of the book is creating a world where BIPOC families can prioritize peace and healing over conflict and survival. And this just as an anti-racist uh, aspiring white accomplice, like obviously there are things about that that was really resonating and connecting for me, but also um, that that that's actually sort of a learning you you've given me in our relationship. I'd say one of one of the biggest uh, uh, learnings I've had at CEI is what you mentioned earlier that that one of the biggest things I can do as a white person in this in this movement is work with other white folks. Uh, the 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 very first the very first uh, week you and I met each other I don't even know if this this still sits with you but but one of the things you said to me that was so unbelievably uh, 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 mind opening for me uh, was you said you know Matt when you pop off at other white folks like you like to do uh, you're not the one who deals with the consequences of that it's my daughter Amina that ends up dealing with the consequences of that. Right. So so uh, so th this idea that um, this idea that uh, 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 peace and healing over conflict and survival have this huge role in, in anti-racist work and race equity work uh, uh, was just really, really unbelievably impactful for me in my own journey. Uh, uh, so wanted to to give you a chance to speak to this, too. Right. So creating a world where BIPOC families can prioritize peace and healing over conflict and survival. Uh, any advice, any thoughts? Anybody? Yeah, that's sure. so 
Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, let me bring my mom in because we started this with moms. Um, my mom is by far and away my biggest hero in my life. Like um, she is, it's hard to describe uh, the kind of impact she has and what an amazing woman she is. And um, she, uh, growing up, my father left kind of at an early age and um, wasn't really supportive in child support and all that kind of stuff. So my mom didn't, all she had was a high school um, diploma. And this is back in the 80s, right? Uh, in the 90s. Uh, so she worked at a 7-Eleven, uh, making $3.35 an hour, trying to raise me and my two sisters and, you know, some low-income apartments. And um, and she would, you know, periodically take like the, I always felt like it was ironic, like around Christmas, she would take the graveyard shift and work at Toys R Us, stocking the shelves for families to get stuff that she could never afford for her own family, right? And um, she did everything she could to make sure that we had a, a home, that we were, you know, a family unit, that um, we had enough food, even if it wasn't what most people would consider as enough food. We had, we had enough to have breakfast and dinner and we had free lunch at school. So we could get that too, you know, and, um, and she did everything she could to hold our family together. And as a product, she has, you know, uh, two daughters who have their masters, you know, in, in, in education, in different places, both are doing amazing work in social justice and equity work I'm doing, the work I'm doing. And so like, if, if we're a reflection of our parents contribution in some ways, I mean, certainly my mom, uh, that, that being said, one of the, the things that's been, I think I feel so strongly about this is I think when you're surviving, there's, it's like all you can see, like, 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 um, when you're hungry, like that's all you can focus on. Like I've been hungry and I have not had food for a long period of time and you don't really focus on much else. <laughs> like you can like you like at best you might like at best when I was really hungry I would go play basketball or something like that to just get my mind off of the hunger but everything is in relationship to hunger if that you know so it's like um I'm doing basketball not because I love doing basketball because it gets my mind off of being hungry right um and so it's a way of coping with right and so I think you know my mom because of our circumstances, she did the very best she could to kind of get the family together. And like we do games and we play together, these kind of things and stuff like that. But there was limited amount of time to do that. She was working. I was out trying to, I was being a teenage boy or whatever, you know, doing my thing. And um, we never thought to say like, hey, let's slow it all down. And, you know, I love you, you matter to me, you know, like, um, well, even if we don't have a lot of money, how do we, um, how do we be more connected or how do we do intentional, you know, all these kinds of things. Cause I think survival has you running, like, like gets you on, gets you running and you can't stop. It feels like you can't stop or like all that kind of stuff or everything will collapse if you don't, if you stop running. Right. And so um, I feel like I personally took that kind of survival mentality and brought it into all of my life. And I think white supremacy does this a little bit to us or a lot to us where it feels like we're constantly surviving or we're constantly trying to make it or, you know, um, if we don't push hard, it, it, the whole you know, whole thing collapses or I have a responsibility because of the people came before me, all these kinds of things. Um, and so we prioritize surviving because it feels like we have to. And to a lot of degree, we have to, like my mom couldn't say, she just couldn't say, I'm not going to work today. Like my mom would go to work. My mom never missed a day at work. I mean, I, as an adult now, I realize people get sick, <laughs> you know, like I realize that like people get sick all the time. 
I never witnessed my mom getting sick. It was almost like either she she told herself, I can't get sick, um, or she was sick and I just didn't actually notice it, which is probably the likely thing. And she was working, you know, day after day after day, being sick, trying to do whatever she could. Like, so I think my mom couldn't take time off of work. And and do that. And at the same time, there's things if I look back, not to critique my mom or family, I think that like. As a parent now, I'm like, oh, okay, wait a minute. We have to figure out in this equation how we make time for this idea of like peace and healing. Like what brings me peace? What brings me healing? And even in some of the most trying circumstances, we can still find that peace and healing and joy. We can still nurture those kinds of things, right? And I just know for myself, I kind of embodied that idea of surviving so much that I stopped even considering. And and, and the, the question about the book is probably the perfect example where the letter on joy came out of my disbelief that I always believed that joy was external. Always believed that. And and Rowaney and I got in a really big discussion and argument about this because she was just like Hanif you don't understand joy is not external it's internal we have access to all that kind of stuff and she was like I remember her telling me this she was like look when I go back home uh to Ethiopia I see some people who've had like they're they're in way worse conditions than the homeless folks here they have like an arm cut off or this or that and they're kind of trying to navigate all kinds of stuff and and yet I still look at them and they're laughing and they're having fun and all that kind of stuff. And so she's like, that always taught me that, like, no matter what the circumstances, you can have joy. And I, my response to her was like, nah, they'd be a whole lot more joyful if they had the other arm, right? Like that other arm is getting in the way of them. And she was like, Hanif, I remember saying like, oh, Hanif, you don't understand this. So then I went to Ethan and I'm like, yo, Ethan, Rowaney says that it, for the listeners, Ethan is a character in the book and he's also a close, close friend of mine and he served eight and a half years in, in prison uh and as like yo for said joy exists inside of us like we we control joy right but you were locked up for eight and a half years and you told me if you want to see hell on earth see a sex offender in a prison system watch us watch what happens to a sex offender in a prison system and you will see hell on earth so are you telling me that those people had joy. And he was like, ah, Hanif, you don't get it. Yes. He was like, yes. Like, he was like, it's the craziest shit. Like, they, like, uh, they still found ways to get, find joy and happiness, even under the, and I was like, you told me you were like locked up and you were in isolation stuff. And you, he's like, look, it, prison was hell. It was all these things. I, I still could. Right. And so then I'm like, I still didn't, like believe it and so then i went to my ex who works in a prison and i said yo listen bran uh ethan says that even sex offenders have access to joy in the prison system and she was like you know what it's the weirdest shit it's totally true like they they form these little groups they have these they they have these conversations they read the book like so it was this like awakening and this is the example like what's the biggest learning of the book that in the book um, all the way to the last scene, actually, of the book, there's a struggle between survival and joy, and I'm and I'm having to choose. I'm actually having to make a choice about um, this part of me that is feeling this sense of survival um, and feeling the need to act and to work and to do these things that will keep me safe and keep and more importantly now keep my daughter safe. And I have this belief I got a in this pattern of, of being, or I can choose something completely different that I know will bring me joy. And the last scene is a choice point of making a choice around that, right? And um, so I realized in this process how debilitating white supremacy can feel and is to communities of color. And I also realize in this process, as debilitating as it is, it doesn't stop us. It We still have choice 
even in that, to experience joy, to build and nurture the things that bring us joy and sense of belonging. And that is ultimately where peace and healing is going to be found. I will not find any, I realized there's no degree of peace and no degree of healing that I will ever find in resistance to white supremacy. That is not where peace and healing live. That's where dismantling lives. That's where the fighting lives. That's where the good fight lives. But peace and healing is not going to be part of that particular process. Peace and healing is going to be found when I'm the kind of father to Amina that I didn't have growing up. Peace and healing is when me and my mom reconcile and our family comes. Peace and healing is like when I sit at the table and our whole family is together and like everyone is like doing well and connected and our nieces and nephews, that next generation is experiencing a sense of like solidness and family and togetherness, you know, all those kinds of things that that's where peace and healing and belonging is when me and Froenia are working it out because we disagree about things. And she sees something as a black woman very differently than I see it as a brown person. And now I'm understanding an experience that I had not understood before and I can be better with her and for her, um, that's healing. And that's where peace is found is in those types of relationships. I have control over that, but I have to choose that. and I have to understand that. And I just don't think there's been space for folks of color to actually explore that at all, you know? And so I don't even know if we understand all the time that that, I, certainly we understand that that's, we can let our guard down with our people. We could do all that, but we don't, I don't think always recognize like, oh, I need that. Like I need to, I need that. I need to, I need to cultivate that. I need to, in, in organizations, we need to structure that as part of the way the work experience lives for people of color is they have those places of respite and guard down places. So that again, peace and healing would be racial equity as an outcome we have a sense of peace yeah yeah you know so that's beautiful thank you hanif uh thank you for being here thanks for doing everything you do thank you for being you uh and listeners in other world the fight for freedom joy and belonging comes out in october you can pre-order it now Please, please, please check it out. It is very, very, very much worth your while and you will be better for having read it. Thank you, Hanif. Thank you. Thank you. This was so great. So great.